Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. She has been called the queen of country, and it is a well-earned title. Reba McIntyre has sold 56 million albums worldwide and is one of the best-selling female country artists of all time. Reba was a born entertainer, and her career branched out beyond music. She was nominated for a Golden Globe for a popular TV sitcom, Reba. She received rave reviews for her Broadway debut in Annie Get Your Gun. Can't you just see how she'd be perfect in that role? Never one to shy away from an opportunity that feels right. Reba musters her gumption and she goes for it. She grew up on a ranch in Chalky, Oklahoma. Her mom was a school teacher and her father a champion steer roper. Reba loves singing back up to her siblings as part of the singing McIntyres. But when her father suggested she get a job at the rodeo singing the national anthem, her solo career was born. And since then, there's been no stopping Miss Reba. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Reba McIntyre. I've been working on the ranch as long as I can remember. Daddy would holler at us little girls, Susie and myself. She's two years younger than I am. And Daddy would put a feed sack there in the driver's seat of the truck, put it up in granny gear. That's the slowest gear. And then we'd kind of set up uh, behind the wheel on our knees on the feed sack, and we'd steer the truck, hopefully in a pretty straight path, while Daddy put the hay out in the back because all the other guys were either doing bigger jobs and you just needed somebody to hold the steering wheel straight. And one day Mama came out and saw the truck. She said, good Lord, the truck's beat all up. What's happened to all these trees? And Daddy said, it's my driver's. <laughs> he knocked all the bark off the trees. <laughs> we didn't go very straight. I grew up in a little bitty town called Chalky, Oklahoma. It had a population of 18 people and there were six of us. Pakes, my older brother, Alice is my older sister, and then there's Susie, my little sister. Mom and Daddy are very hardworking people. When they got married, they had absolutely nothing, and they built a ranch with four kids and taught us how to work hard. Daddy had uh, feeder steers. We would uh, doctor them, brand them, castrate, dehorn, whatever needed to be done, and I think that's where I got my sense of how to take direction. When Daddy said, you get on your horse and you go over and you sit in that gate, don't let any cattle get through. I don't care if it's, it's dark by the time he gets back, you stay at that gate. We would be up in the morning early and before breakfast, we'd go out and get the cattle out of a 40-acre pasture. We'd eat breakfast, we'd all take off and gather cattle, bring them down into the pens, we'd weigh and ship, and then we'd go to school. So we worked as kids, we worked hard as kids, and I'm very proud of that. Daddy was a very stern, strict, driven, serious. That's, that's pretty good adjectives for Daddy. 
Daddy was a lot of fun when he got to telling stories to other adults and stuff. To us kids, he wasn't fun with us at all. We were like hired hands. And so we worked hard and we got the job done. And if we did a good job, Daddy would take us up on top of the hill and we'd go swimming in the pond or he'd take us for an ice cream. But Daddy wasn't a, um, a jokester. He was very serious. He had a lot of responsibility. And he went broke several times. Mama said he wore out several pencils trying to figure out a way to, to get ahead. And he did. He worked really, really hard at it, and it was a lot of pressure on him. Mama was the one that we went to for fun, joking around. Now, Mama was, you know, she'd play with you. You know, we'd play cards or we'd have fun, and then she'd say, okay, now I gotta go cook supper or I gotta go do this. I gotta, you guys, you kids go, go outside and play. Get out of here. But Mama was the most affectionate one of the, of the couple of parents by far. Mama has a great voice, and she had a really good voice when she was young. And it was her intent for her and one of her best friends to go out to Los Angeles and to become a duo. Well, Grandpa wasn't going to go for that at all. He wasn't going to let her leave because they were sharecroppers, and he needed her there at the house to help work. And she was teaching school by the time she was 16 years old at a little one-room schoolhouse there in southeastern Oklahoma. But we always sang around the house, especially when Daddy wasn't there because they didn't like that. We would work on our music and we would sing and mama, mama was always either the referee or the coach and most times both and we'd be in there trying to learn a song and we'd be arguing about it and we'd holler for mama and she'd come in there with her spatula, she'd be cooking supper and she'd say, what's wrong? And Peg could say, well, Susie and Reba didn't learn the words of the song and they're reading my lips so they can sing harmony and mama would get on to us about that. And I would say, Susie's on my part. Mama would say, sing it. And she'd correct us. Reba, you stay up. Susie, you stay on the bottom part. And then she'd go back to cooking, and she'd say, now y'all do it again. Keep practicing. And so that's when the singing McIntyre started. And then we had other students in the school who wanted to play bass guitar and drums, and, and so it was, we, had our, we had our band there. And we would. We would play concerts that would raise money for, like, the senior class to go on their trip. And then on, on weekends, we would kind of borrow the instruments and the sound system, and we'd go play clubs. They weren't very far from the house, but they were, you know, beer joints, honky-tonks, dance halls. And that was also about the time I got baptized at the Baptist Church in Kiowa, Oklahoma. And so it was a Saturday night. We were at the dance hall playing, and I had told Mama going over to the dance hall at Sulphur, Oklahoma, I said, to, I'm going to encourage everybody to go to church tomorrow since I'm going to get baptized and everything. I think everybody needs to go to church. Tell them to. And Mama sat there for a little bit, and she said, uh, what makes you think they are not already going to church every Sunday? And I said, well, I guess because they're here at this beer joint honky-tonk. She said, well, you're here. I said, good point. She said, you don't know what they do every day. They might go to work. They might go every day. Every time the doors open, they might be going to church. You don't know. And Good lesson there. That was my first big lesson on passing judgment. You don't know what other people do. You don't know their hearts. You don't know their lives. You just got to take care of little Reba. That's what I had. That's what I got to do right here. Rodeo's always been in my family. Grandpap John McIntyre was a world champion steer roper in 1934. And then Daddy comes along, and Daddy's a three-time world champion steer roper, 57, 58, and 61. And so having four kids, all of us kids rodeoed except for Susie, my little sister. 
And our playtime, our playground was the roping pen. And when we were released from our chores, that's where we headed. And we'd get a horse or two and take off to the roping pen and, and we'd stay down there till dark. And then we'd come back up to the house, eat supper, watch team go to bed. There were all girl rodeos where you could rope and ride bulls and, and broncs and stuff, but I didn't want to do that. I liked barrel racing. Barrel racing is an event for women. And now it's, it's very popular with men too. You're set up in the arena with three barrels and it's in a triangle and you go around the barrels in a cloverleaf pattern. And if you knock over a barrel, you get penalized five seconds. So it's a timed event. And if you stay on your horse and get around them without knocking over a barrel in the fastest time, you win. I wasn't that good. I was a good donator. You know, I would pay my entry fee, but I had a great time. Mama taught us if you're gonna compete, you gotta be a good loser. That makes a better winner. When you do get to win, that, you appreciate it more. You, gotta, you can't win all the time. And so what you gotta do is figure out what did you do wrong? What can I do better next time? And don't just sit around griping about it. So I just like to compete. I like to be in the running. Kenny Rogers used to say, he said, uh, I may not be in the top five, but I, I sure do like to run with the top 10. That's fine with me. I just like to be in the running. And that's the way I am. I just like to be in the competition. I was in college. I was a sophomore at Southeastern State University where Mama went to school. And I was there. And of course, I would go to the National Finals Rodeo in Oklahoma City every year to watch the rodeo. And Daddy had a great idea. He said, Raven, instead of going to the finals having a big time, won't you get you a job up there? I said, well, doing what? He said, won't you sing the National Anthem? I said, hmm, that's a good idea. So I called Clem McSpadden. And he was one of the main men of the National Finals Rodeo and a good friend of the family. He's a rodeo announcer. I've known Clem all my life. And so I called Clem and asked him if he could help me get this job. And he said, well, I think we can pull that off. So I went up for the rehearsals and got through that. And so I sang the National Anthem for the nine performances in 1974. And during that year, a gentleman by the name of Red Stegall was at the rodeo. And then later on that night after the rodeo, mom and daddy and Peg and Susie and I, we went over to the Hilton and we got in there, we were singing and they brought what they call a guitar pool. You know, you play a song, pass the guitar around. Well, we had been singing a little bit and mama got over in the corner with Red Stegall and said, Red, do you think there's anything you can do to help Peg Reeve and Susie out and get them in the music business? He said, oh, Jackie, I'm just really fighting for myself right now trying to get in. And she said, well, I appreciate that. And so that was December 74. So January 75, Mama gets a call from Red Stegall. And he said, Jackie, I've been thinking about what you said about the kids. He said, I don't think I could take all three, but what if I just took Reba and tried to get her in the music business, get her foot in the door, and then maybe she could bring Peyke and Susie in later. Mama said, uh, well, let me talk to the kids about it. And Peyke and Susie said, yes, definitely go with it. When we decided for me to go on with Red, it was very scary for me to leave Paik and Susie behind because Paik was the lead singer. Susie and I were pretty much the harmony singers. And we would do, you know, I, I had my Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton songs I'd sing and Susie had her songs to sing, but mainly we sang harmony with Paik. So it was scary. It was very strange to go off. The drive down to Nashville was pretty scary for me. You know, I knew that mama had wanted to be a singer and I was going for it. I missed my rodeo family. I missed people that I was familiar with. And I knew going down to Nashville, I wasn't going to know anybody down there except Red Stegall. So it was scary. It was the unknown. And unknown brings fear into the whole situation. 
And so I was saying, let's stop over here and see this. Well, let's stop over here. Mama finally said, Reba, if you don't want to go to Nashville, we don't have to do this. We can go home. She said, well, I just want you to know, if you do this, I'll be living all my dreams through you. I said, well, shoot, why didn't you say that in the first place? Let's go. And that gave me more of a drive than anything because it wasn't only doing it for myself. I was doing it for Mama and me. So that was the best thing in the world. I recorded three or four songs that Red Steagall had written, and nothing happened for a while. And pretty soon, a guy by the name of Glenn Keener at Polygram Mercury Records heard the songs and liked my singing. And so 11 months after I went down to Nashville, I had a recording contract with Mercury Records. I, I was totally ignorant of the business. I thought when you got on the radio, you was rich and had a tour bus and, and you was rich. <laughs> way it was. I'm telling you, it was, you know, you're in pickup trucks and you haul trailers and then you're, I was converting a horse trailer into a trailer I could take my instruments and the equipment in, changing clothes in the horse trailer and before we went on to perform. So it was a long road to get to that first number one record. Matter of fact, the day I heard that my record came with the blues with number one, we were in a bus barn in DeSoto, Texas because the front left wheel of the bus was just about to fall off. And so I'd called my manager, Don Williams, and I said, well, any news? He said, yeah, your song went number one. And I looked around, there we were sitting in this bus barn. And, um, you know, great, I'm going to call Mama, and then we've got to get on down the road to our next little date. And so it was, um, it was a long, hard road to that number one record, but very well worth it, worth waiting for. I learned a lot. I learned a lot to be on my own, to stand up there in front of the stage by myself, and to carry the load. And it wasn't fun all the time. I've gotten booed off stage. It was very, very tough, but I never did want to quit. 1978, I was playing the Cowtown Picking Party in Fort Worth, Texas. And I had gone down under the assumption that I had a band, a band that was playing earlier that day, Got down there, they didn't want to back me. And so I looked at the promoter, I said, what am I going to do? He said, well, there was another rock and roll band that was playing, and they said they'd back you. I was sure he had to pay them a little extra money, and, and uh, they were for that. And so I walked over to him and said, hi, I'm Reuben McIntyre. And the promoter says, you, you guys will back me on my little 30-minute stint this afternoon. They said, yeah. And I said, well, okay, here's my set list. Do you know Faded Love? Nope. Do you know San Antonio Rose? Nope. Although I'd had a recording contract for two years, they didn't know any of my songs either. You know, I only had a couple of singles out and they didn't know any of them. So I was going on standards, you know, songs that have been very popular in country music. They didn't know anything. Finally, I went to the pop world and I said, uh, Joy of the World, Jeremiah Was a Bullfrog, you know that song? Yeah, we know that. Proud Mary, yeah, we know that song. 30 minutes, those songs do not take up 30 minutes. So I was on stage. John Conley had a song, Rose Colored Glasses, out, and he was the headliner. And so the crowd was going, bring on John Conley. And I was up there and I'd done my two songs and so I started telling jokes. I'm not a great joke teller. So they started booing me off the stage. I said, look guys, I got 30 minutes to do, that's what my contract says. And so if I'm gonna get paid, I gotta do my 30 minutes. So I think I did the same songs over again. And they were booing me off stage. And so I walked off stage and there was mama, she was madder, little banny hen. And, and the guy from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram was there to interview him. And he said, well, okay, what are you gonna do, quit? And I said, no, I'm not gonna quit. 
He said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I've got to go to Fanfare in Nashville, Tennessee. That's where all the fans come from all over the world to see their favorite country artist. And I'm going to go and I'm going to sign autographs and I'm going to have a talk with my agency and I'm going to tell them not to book me with anybody other than Red Steagall and Jackie Ward and so I can use their bands until I find a band of my own. He said, well, all right. And so it just so happened that the next week I was doing a bull sale in Poteet, Texas. And there was a band there called Southern Comfort and they needed a girl singer and I needed a band and we got together. I think there's a lot of power in putting it out in the universe. It's telling your subconscious mind, this is what's gonna happen. And that subconscious mind says, yes, that's what's gonna work. I think positive thinking and uh, not giving up, perseverance, I think it all goes into that strong mind of that will work, we will make it happen. Well, in my career, I was always learning from different people, whether it was a producer, musicians, out on the road, better way of doing things. And slowly but surely, I was getting confidence in myself. The three bones you gotta have, the wishbone, funny bone, and a backbone, it's very important because a wishbone, you've gotta have goals. You set goals for yourself. I always have to have something to look forward to. I wish for things. Um, and I think once you say it out loud and get it out into the universe, it, uh, you have your helpers and then your subconscious takes over and, and things work out. And then your backbone is your drive and that helps you to get the fortitude and make it happen. Um, funny bone, you gotta have a sense of humor about things. When things go wrong, I mean, it can drive yourself, you can drive yourself crazy by saying, I, I gotta fix it, I gotta make it better. And really kick yourself in the butt sometimes when you do things wrong. Oh man, I, I, that was awful, I didn't hit my note. Don't sweat the small stuff. Gotta go on with things, just do better next time. The music industry in the 70s were very male dominated in all facets of the business, leaders, producers, Women were pretty much told what to do and when to sing, and you know, that's what I'd heard. And I was watching how other people were wanting me to do things, and I kind of had an idea that that's not what I wanted. And it wasn't until I went over to MCA Records and I was under Jimmy Bowen. Jimmy Bowen was the head of MCA Records at that time. And I was working with producers, Harold Shedd, a great producer, and he was bringing in orchestras and he was bringing in kind of musicians that wasn't what I was used to because I wanted a steel guitar, I wanted fiddles. Violins are great, but that wasn't my kind of country that I grew up with. And so I went to the head of the label, Jimmy Bowen, and I said, Jimmy, this is not where I'm wanting to be. He said, well, woman, where is it where you want to be? I said, well, I want to play my kind of country, more country, I want a steel guitar, I want a fiddle in there. And he said, well, won't you go home and make me a tape of the songs you, what, what are you talking about? So I went home and I made a cassette tape of all my favorite songs and, and singers, and I gave it back to Jimmy. I said, now that's my kind of country. He said, all right, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to go find your own songs. So how do I do that? He said, you need to go to the publishing companies. You need to sit there and let the publishers play you songs that their writers have written. I said, okay. So we hit all the publishing houses in Nashville until we found the songs that I liked. And you'd say, how did you know when there was a good song? Well, I would get chill bumps. Hair on my arms would just raise up. So we knew when we had a good song. And we came back with a good box load of tapes. And my first album was called My Kind of Country.
From that point on, I started taking control of my music, gaining confidence. I saw that I can think up a better way of doing things. Since Jimmy gave me the confidence to go find the songs, if I picked that song, I picked uh, Whoever's in New England. That was my first gold album. That was the first video we'd ever done. And so that was another huge step for me in the music business. So therefore, with that little bit more of confidence built in there, I started saying, you know what? I want to be looked after better. I don't want an agent who has 16 more acts to look after. I want to have an individual agent. And they're like, nah, that doesn't happen. You, you can't have that. Hmm. I said, well, I will one of these days. And so I decided to make a few changes in my life, which I did. And I took more control over my life and my career. After winning a few awards, it was kind of like, well, that's it. You've peaked. I knew I, what I wanted to do was continue my music career. And everybody kind of felt like it was pretty much over. Well, when I say everybody in the business, I meant management and my husband who working with management. So, well, it's just that I knew in my heart it wasn't over. That's when I had to make the biggest change in my life. I divorced my husband, fired my manager. So big change of events in my personal life, but it also catapulted my career. I mean, 76 to now, I mean, gosh, I've been doing this a long time. And I just couldn't ask for anything more, except more years. By 1987, Reba was finally in charge of her music and her life. It was the situation she'd been longing for. Then, two years later, tragedy struck. Reba lost eight members of her band in a plane crash. As you can imagine, life would never be the same. Well, it was in 1991, March of 91, and we were playing a private show in San Diego, California. And after the show, we had um, two hawkers that were out at the airport, the FBO, and it was Brownfield in San Diego. That was the airport. And Sandy Spica, who was my stylist, who did my hair and my clothes, Sandy and I were going to stay all night there in San Diego and fly the next morning or the next day to Fort Wayne, Indiana for our concert the next night. And so the other two hawkers, airplanes, were at Brownfield and my band and part of my crew, the rest of the crew was already in Indiana, were going to split up in these two planes and fly to Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so one of them took off and when the other one took off, the tip of the wing of the airplane hit a rock on the side of Otay Mountain. And it killed everyone on the plane. And we were notified and met with our pilot, and uh, he told us what had happened. It was 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and he said, one of the planes have crashed. And I said, are they okay? He said, I don't think so. I said, but you're not sure. He said, I don't think so. So in my mind, any minute now, we're going to get a call. They're all right. Well, that call never came. And so the rest of the, the night, we were going room to room with the phone and uh, calling. I'm sorry. It's been 20 years. It's just like, I don't guess it ever quits hurting. And so... I went in the other room and I called Barbara Mandrill because I had taken Kirk Pello, my musical director. I'd gotten him from her. 
She was very close to Kirk, and I wanted her to know from me that he had died in the plane crash. And so it was a long night. It was a very long night. And the other plane landed in Memphis, and they got off the plane, and they saw it there at the FBO Memphis. And they're like, it's in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then they had to tell them. And it took a lot of talking to get them back in that plane, to get them back to Nashville. In Fort Wayne, Indiana, my bus driver, Larry Jones, one of my bus drivers, was um, going to the airport to pick up the band and crew. He'd got the keys at the front desk, and he was going out to the bus, and another one of the drivers passed him, and he said, well, that's awful about the, plan about the band, isn't it? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, yeah, they were killed last night in a plane crash. There were so many people to call that, you know, you, we just didn't cover everybody. I called Mom and Daddy, and Mom said that Daddy answered the phone. He was in there in the kitchen, and he walked back in her bedroom, and, and she said, Clark, what is it? She said, Clark, what is it? He said, give me a minute. He said, that was Reba, and he, one of the planes had crashed. She's okay, but she lost part of her band, and Jim Hammond, her tour manager. So it was just, it was the worst thing that's ever happened in my life, but I just can't imagine Jim's family, Kirk's family, Joey, Paula Kate, all the band that we lost, the pilots, their family. I lost friends. They lost family members. Very talented, fun people to be around. And it was one of those situations where, you know, we've got the rest of the tour. And I was like, are you kidding? I, I really thought it was over. I didn't know how on earth the rest of the band, Pete Finney and Joe McGlohan and myself, could get back on stage without the rest of them. I got calls from Vince Gill. He said, buddy, I'll be on stage with you. I'll help you. Dolly Parton should take my band. It was a huge outpour of friends in the community, family, that were there for us. But nobody could replace the ones that we love so much that we lost. And that's one of the questions I'll ask God when I get up there. Why did you take them so quick? They had so much more to give. And we had so much more to learn from them. But we learn from that situation. And the biggest thing that I learned is don't go a day without telling people you love them. And do act like this day could be your last one. So do what you want to do. And the fact of hanging out with your family, do things that are important. Don't put it off till tomorrow. I always love being a part of an ensemble better than being a solo act because that's what I grew up with. And then when I got to go and do Annie Get Your Gun on Broadway, that was just a thrill of a lifetime because I got to sing, dance, act with a bunch of group of people. And that was just playtime for me. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I've always been a fan of Annie Oakley. When she had her television show, when it was the Annie Oakley television show, when before I started school, I would watch it when our television would work. And years later, they were doing the Broadway play and then you get your gun, and they asked me to do it, and I, well, no, I'm a gypsy. I travel all over the world, and, and I can't stay in one place for a year. Good Lord, no. And so we're going over to Europe. We had left Nashville in our plane, our hawker, 
got up to New York, we're going to get on the Concorde and fly over on a Sunday. Well, we got there, and they said that our flight had been canceled because the catering truck had knocked the door off the plane. That's pretty weird. So anyway, our flight was canceled. I said, let's go see a play. We're in New York. Well, Bernadette Peters is doing, and he gets your gun. Let's go see it. They've been wanting you to do it for a while. And I said, sure, fine with me. So we went over there to the Marquee Theater and watched it. And at intermission, I said, I've got to be on that stage. So I thought that's pretty dang bizarre how God makes things happen or whatever it is that makes things happen. So they had told me, they said, don't expect good reviews. I mean, Bernadette's already blown it out of the ballpark, and so, you know, probably not going to happen getting a good review. And I said, okay, hey, I, I'm here. I'm, I'm loving it. All I want to do is be on that stage. That's all I care about. And we got great reviews. I was thrilled to death. First night for me to play Annie Oakley. I'm not in the first 17 minutes of the program. I'm backstage, and I creep through those doors, and I'm up on right on the, right on the side of the stage, and the stage managers, Jim's telling me to get back. You know, you're going to run over. And I sneak back up there to watch the show. And boy, when it's my turn on that 18th minute for me to get on that stage, I'm a happy camper. I was where I needed to be. I loved it. I never was afraid. I never was nervous. I was so ready to be on that stage. The crowd started increasing, started to be harder to get a ticket, and I was having a blast. It was one of the most fun things I've ever gotten to do. You know, it's really funny. A long time ago, I was helping Bob Hope. I was performing with him at benefits, and he said that he enjoyed giving back better than receiving. He said it's kind of like Christmas. To give is better than to receive. And you really don't understand the meaning of that until you do give and give back. And it is, it is a great feeling to know you're helping people. It's, I know I say fun a lot. Fun is a big word. Daddy always thought it just meant hooping it off, you know, just not taking care of responsibility. Fun to me is you enjoy it, you have a great time at it, it makes you feel good because it makes others feel good too. You're helping other people where you could not do it and go on with life, but it's so rewarding. I think sometimes it makes me feel better than it does them. I'll give you a great for instance. Is There Life Out There is a song that I heard driving down the road while I was listening to demos, trying to find songs for the next album. And I thought, wow, lots of people can relate to this song. Is There Life Out There? Talking about a woman she married when she was 20, she thought she was ready, now she's not so sure. She don't want to leave her marriage and her kids, her family. She's just wondering, is there life out there? Something she's missing. It inspired women to go back and get their GEDs, to go back to college, to see what is life after getting their children raised. And it was just a very inspirational song. And I, I was always saying, oh, lots of people can relate. I can relate to that song. Is there more out there? When I would do Is There Life Out There, when that first came out, Women in the audience would stand up with their diplomas in their hands. Women that you could tell had gone back after raising their children to get their diploma. That meant a lot to me. And to see that kind of reaction from an audience, you've done your job. Bullseye. Reba has done her job, and she has done it well. Her career was built on her kind of country. And she always brought a message with it. 
Since she was a little girl on that ranch, she learned that nothing comes without hard work, and she's never forgotten the lesson about cherishing every day. No matter what great adventure Reba embarks on next, you can bet it's going to be something worth singing about. I don't think there's ever been a point in my career where I have said, I've made it. What does that mean, I've made it? Made it to what? If you say, I've made it, then are you finished? I don't want to be finished. I don't want to quit. So people are really afraid to go into the Country Music Hall of Fame. Then that would be, I've made it. Am I over? I've gotten in the Country Music Hall of Fame, and I sure don't want to be over. And I hear a lot of them say, Dolly Parton, she's in the Country Music Hall of Fame, has been for years. And that's the last thing she wants to do is quit, to stop, to be finished. I love to, to do new things, see new things, and I've got a huge curiosity. I think I do set out to achieve a goal. And once I achieve it, I either want to repeat it, do it more, or there's something else. You know, everybody say, all right, what else do you want to do? Well, you know, I've always wanted to be a movie star. Well, I did 11 movies. What else you want to do? Well, I'd love to do a sitcom. I've done that. I'd love to do another one. Well, I've done Broadway. I want to do another one. Because it's fun. It's exciting. If you've accomplished something and you don't want to do it again, that's fine. You can sit back and say, yep, I did that. That's all I want to do on that. But it's so much fun to entertain. It's so much fun. It's, it's that competitive drive. It's to see what more you can do, what more ideas you can think of. It keeps the creative juices flowing. It keeps me young. One time, after I'd won an award, I said, Daddy, let me ask you something. When you won all your championships, receiving that trophy buckle and your saddle, which was more fun, getting that trophy saddle and the buckle or the getting there? He said, the getting there. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.